Okay, where's the wicker basket to which all the phones are deposited? <laughs> People are sick. Most what? I also have a quick question. This would be yes or no. Is there a concept of like emancipation for kids in like Judaism? No. There's no concept like that? No. Okay, can I can I just make a point about questions? Um, it is a good idea when you want to ask a question and get an answer. Two things: one, be specific. Two, okay, is to ask yourself: Am I making big assumptions before the question? Did I make a big assumption? Right. Yeah, you made a make a huge assumption, right? I don't know. Well. The idea of emancipation, right? Now, if I ask you what's emancipation? It's like being, I don't know, being divorced from your parents. Divorced from your parents. But that presupposes you understand the legal relationships of, of parents to children to begin with. Yeah. Right. But, in the, so the real question should be is, what is the legal relationship between parents and children in Judaism? Because it yeah. could be that, that because the, the nature of that legal relationship, the concept of emancipation wouldn't exist. Yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> so, in, see, in Judaism, the thing is, parents are not actually, like, the, 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 the ideas of custody and responsibility are broken up in, diff- in a completely different way than they are yeah. as in modern American law. Yeah. And so the consequence of just couldn't happen. Okay. That's I, I have no idea about any yeah. of that, so. 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 Like. Like, someone asked me, what's Judaism's view on violations of rights to privacy? So I asked them, well, who said that Judaism believes that there's a right to privacy? Like, that should be question number one. Is there a right to privacy in Judaism? And then the question is, if there is, you know, what about the violation? What is it? And then, right, you see what I'm saying? Like, a lot of times we, we're, our question is like three or four steps down the road, but the real issue. Okay, chapter three. Okay. So we learned about these different stages of the godly soul actually developing and being able to be present and functional, not just being a, like a vegetative state, but actually a fully functional state. And there's basically three levels to that, nefesh, ruach, and neshama. And regardless of which level or stage you're holding in, that stage is comprised of 10 faculties, 10 abilities. And those ten abilities correspond to the ten spheres. The ten spheres are the ways that Hashem manifests Himself in reality. Okay? Now, it's not that He has ten spheres as part of Himself. Rather, He creates these things and presents Himself and functions through them similar to and analogous to the way a soul functions and presents itself in the world through a body. There you go. That was like a one-minute summary of three at four hours of class. Yes? Okay, this might be slightly tangential, but how do we, like, with these kind of probabilistic ideas, mm-hmm. how do we trust someone, like, having Baruch Kodesh versus, like, them just being, like, smart or, like, intuitive? Well, first, is that making a claim of Baruch Kodesh? No, that's why I'm, it's tangential. I mean, that's, that, that's, I'm just saying, if someone's making a claim of Baruch so the thing is like this, if someone's making a claim of Baruch Kodesh, then we can evaluate, but if someone's not making a claim of Baruch Kodesh, then, like, uh, maybe you shouldn't trust them. But, uh, but like well, in terms of like, so like if I were to ask how you know X and then, then a so, teacher says, oh, that person had a real coach. Well, then I refer you back to the classes which I gave you in the winter program about prophecy. Okay. Okay. Now, I would like to point out there is a question, which is how do I find the confidence within myself to decide that I trust something is true? That is a very personal question. One that does not have a direct answer in a classroom. Right? 
But if you're asking what's the Torah standards, like I say, go look up the laws of prophecy and those sages and whatever. As a purely academic matter, though, it's really irrelevant because everybody that's intelligent and writes something clearly had an understanding that they thought it was true, right? So even if I even if I want to entirely disagree with the Alter Rebbe, I still have to understand what the Alter Rebbe thought to be true and divinely inspired from his own perspective in order to disagree with it. So if you're studying a text, it's a really like a question of whether Rashi is divinely inspired, Rashi was really smart, or Rashi just made this stuff up. Because at, at least Rashi understood himself to be saying something true, right? So if you understand what he's saying, you have to kind of inhabit that point of view to make sense of it. You can say that with anyone. That's true. Which is why, if I really want to, if I really, if I really wanted, I could say, well, you know, in Hitler's mind, Hitler was right, and so if I want to understand Mein Kampf, I have to adopt that perspective in order to make sense of Mein Kampf. I don't particularly want to do that, but that's a personal choice again. But if for some reason you wanted to study a text written by any person, you have to presuppose that what they're saying is true because they're writing from the perspective that what they're saying is true and would defend their position. So, yeah. Yeah. There's so much written on analyzing the specific wording that Rashi uses, and it's my impression that we only do that because we believe that he had Ruach HaKodesh, and that even the sequence of words he used were using this sort of synonym versus that synonym uh, is meaningful, whereas when I'm reading uh, anything written by John Locke, I, generally speaking, don't analyze why this word I will, I, will, I will tell you a story and we'll leave it at that. The, the Mikler Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe, whose picture is on the top left. Which? The top left. Right. So, picture? Oh, right, because he looked just like the Alter Rebbe. That's right. And so they just, yeah. They just didn't have a picture. But he was so identified with his writings that we put a picture of his writings for his picture of him. Anyway, so he told the Chassid, you should study two books. Study the Tanya. I should study here, a book called Imre Bina, which he had written. And the Chassid came back to him a while later and said, well, I learned Tanya, and I understood Tanya, but I learned Imre Bina, I have no idea what's flying. And so the, the Mithler Rebbe, the Sekhah Chabad Rebbe said, my father, who was the author of the Tanya, when he wrote Tanya, he was careful about the precise spelling of a word, whether it had a vav or it didn't have a vav in it. I was not that way when I wrote Imre Bina. So when you read Imre Bina, you learn Imre Bina, you have to read through the book about five or six times and get the general idea and don't pay attention to every nuance and wording. Which means even people with Ruach HaKodesh, there is a style and you have to know what their style is. Rashi wrote in such a way that he, that he used, that, even before he gets to the Ruach HaKodesh, Rashi used very selective wording. We see this and you contrast what Rashi said to the source material Rashi was working off of. Okay. And we know, so the Tanya is written in this kind of very precise, very dense. His son, the Alter Rebbe's son, the Mithra Rebbe, his writings are not that way. If the Mithra Rebbe uses three different terms, it may just be he's using synonyms for the same idea and there's nothing to it. Mm-hmm. But if the Alter Rebbe does that, that's a big deal. So even Ruach HaKodesh, there is still a style difference. I mean, two of the most famous Jewish thinkers are the Rambam and the Maral of Prague. If the Maral of Prague sounds like he's repeating himself, that's because he is. If the Rambam sounds like he's repeating himself, it means you didn't understand the second point. Okay, so there is a stylistic difference. Now, it is... Tr- 
What? You read it, you, you, teachers, remember these things are not just discovered one day in, in a library, right? There's a living tradition of them, going back to people living. And also you can see how the people who are contemporaries, they, they studied them and, and, and how they themselves related back to their own works. And you can look at where they're coming from. You can see, you can see how Rashi versus contemporary using a tiny word change really are addressing issues. Now, Ruach HaKodesh means, the Ruach HaKodesh means that there's more guiding that than they could have consciously been aware of. But this idea of paying attention to the wording, you don't need to get to Ruach HaKodesh for that. Okay? Right, maybe people do that with Harry Potter. I mean, to put the point, even someone who is at least contemporary as Rav Moshe Feinstein, who nobody really makes claims that he had Ruach HaKodesh, when looking at his Allah response, do look at nuances and wording where it seems relevant to resolve an issue. And then there is somewhat of an art form of learning how to do textual analysis, and you have to get to know a person's style. Like when I was learning, when I was learning for my ordination, so there's two main commentaries in the Code of Jewish Law, and the section deals with laws of kosher. One is called the Taz, and one is called the Shach. So the rule is that the Shach is very long, and every point that he brings, he brings like 25 sources to back up his point. And so one of the things the teachers told us in the beginning is, you don't have to look up every source that the Shach brings. There's a backstory to why he did that. If the Taz brings up a source, you should look it up. Because the way they use quoting sources and referencing the the Shach's teacher once made a very big mistake. And so he took it upon himself that he would never say anything without backing it up. So every book that made that same point, he would quote. Which means you don't really have to look up everything. But if the Taz makes a source, he selected that source for a reason. And therefore, it's important to understand why he selected that source and what he meant with that. These are the kinds of things that if you have a living tradition and you, you see enough of the material, you start to pay attention to. Yeah, and there are ways of reading Rashi that are not appropriate for reading another person who would also attribute Ruch HaKadosh to. Um, Rashi had a grandson named the Rashban. And he had Ruch HaKadosh. And his commentary on the Talmud is much more verbose than Rashi's. Rashi stops commenting at point and his grandson takes over the commentary and it's annoying because you get used to this idea that Rashi with one word clarifies an issue and now the, his grandson has to use a whole paragraph to address the same thing. So, anyway, fine. That being that. Fine, so now we are moving on to after parentheses from. So these ten faculties correspond to ten spheres from which they have descended. Okay? Why do they correspond? Because they descended from them. Now, Sorry, they from them. the ten faculties of the godly soul, on whatever level of development it is, correspond to the ten spheres. Why do they correspond to the ten spheres? Because they descended from the ten spheres. Okay, so let me explain to you what this means. <clears throat> Does a doll have a hand and a face and a nose? Yeah. Why? Right. Okay, but now if we think about it, does it really have a hand and a nose and a face? Or it has something that represents? Right? So there's an idea of corresponding where I have one thing and then I make something else that corresponds, but it's really a representation of. Yeah? Right? In fact, when children make drawings, when children make drawings, what are they really doing? They're representing things in the world, which is why, like, when little kids draw families, how tall do they draw their father? Really tall. They're basically the top of the page. And their mother? Medium. Yeah, usually upper at the top, right? And then the kids? Like, really, really short. And hair is just coming off the sides and they're bald on top. There's all sorts of things. <laughs> like, 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 
Kids, kids, the, 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 the drawing is representative of something, right? What? Okay, now, some adults, they do something different. We call these adults artists, and what do they do? That, that, that is a different kind of art. I'm not even... No, but someone who's drawing, drawing a portrait and it's like, it's, it's like made, an incredible artist who like makes something super realistic. Right, so what are they doing? They're making something which appears like the original. It doesn't represent the original. In other words, when a child draws a face, are they expecting that face should actually appear like a face? Or the idea is that when you look at those circles and lines, what, what does that call to mind? A face, right? It's symbolic, it's representative. It, it parallels in that sense, right? When an artist, what does an artist do? An artist deconstructs the real thing, mentally, yeah, usually, right? And then they figure out how do you reconstruct that same thing on a plane, right? There's like, so the, the artist sits there and there's like a person and the artist is like, okay, how do I deconstruct what makes a face look like a face and then recreate that in two dimensions using, using um, say, I don't know, uh, pencil, right? They're doing an entirely different thing. Okay, um, has anyone ever taken a drawing class? Okay, so we're gonna do a drawing class very quickly. Okay. Now, keep in mind, I'm not a professional artist, so this is to illustrate a point. Okay. So first point is if I want to draw a face, what shape should I start with? A circle. No, oval. That's already a big difference. Faces are ovals, they're not circles. Okay? So children, and people who do some drawing, they start like that. Because for some reason a circle invokes a face in your mind. But if you want to actually make something appear as a face, what do you need to do? Oh, now we can get more specific. Right? How wide versus how tall should the oval be? Right? How sharp should the curves be? Like, I'm not that close when I'm going to get into that kind of stuff. Okay. Now, where should I put my eyes? You should make out like this and like this. This. That's right. I should make. I should draw it in the, and I should put my eyes on the line. On the line that's halfway through. Right. But children, what do they do? Very top. They put the eyes around here. Right. It's a face to me. It's a face to you. Does it look like a face, or does it evoke in your mind a face? Looks like a smiley face. Yeah. It looks. That's what a face actually looks like. No, not. It's like an emoji. We took a picture of you and started to shape it so that the distance between your eyes. It looks like an emoji. No more. Okay. Now, if you so you put the eyes over here. How wide should I make my eyes? How wide are your eyes? So you divide this into five. And I'm again, I'm not an artist. But the eyes of a person. <laughs> Do you want any music? Now, I'm going to stop and ask again. This is like a mask. What is that? What is that? It looks like a mask, right? You know why it looks like a mask? Because this is about how much, if you had a full mask, like a hockey mask or something, or a ski mask, this is about how much of your head is above your eyes. This is about how much of your head is below your eyes, okay? And then you can deconstruct more and more. Now, then the question is, it's not enough to deconstruct these elements. How do you reconstruct them when they really appear? Right? How do you get them? Now, 
something that represents something, I only need one factor, which is that when you see, in the case of drawing, when you see that thing, what shows up in your mind is the same thing I intended, right? So we use another example. I will do this and you tell me what I'm trying to tell, what this is. Someone drew a very, if someone drew a very realistic um, still life of a bathroom and you saw that, you would also say, oh, that's a bathroom. But what, you mean something very different there when you say that's a bathroom. What do you mean? That actually appears as a bathroom. The act of experiencing that image is quite similar to the experience of actually seeing a bathroom. I don't know why you would do that. Like, do you know this is not a pipe? No. It's a scene made What is a pipe? You love this. like a realistic... Yeah. No, no. It's so we need we need three we need more we need more categories. That's my point. You have an actual pipe, you have a representation of a pipe, and you have something which is meant to appear as a pipe. Okay. Okay. In other words, the, in other words, when you don't have a fine enough categories, right? The reason why many people like are really bad at art is because. They don't make the transition between just drawing something which evokes in the mind that thing versus actually trying to do something that will actually create the experience of seeing the thing. Right? Yeah. But isn't by that definition, that's like a very subjective thing to do with intent. Like if someone intends to draw something realistic but they're just bad at it, they're still intending to draw something realistic. And yeah. Like where's the line like with a child who like grows up always drawing and then like as they get older, they get better and better at drawing, and then like suddenly they're like a, they can draw really realistic things. But there was a transitional point where they like were drawing something that was representative, but also. So, part of that has to do with how they themselves experience it. The way the way, if you're gonna if you're going to actually do something in a way where where, where it's not just representative, it's actually meant to appear that way. You have to actually experience the original differently. You have to, right, that 
a lot of, and some people have a knack for this, they do this intuitively. Some people will train, and some people you can try and teach them all they want, they just, they're not good at it. Okay? But to actually, um, you know, and some of it can happen through experimentation, right? In the, re- in the period of the Renaissance, or people who actually started, like, like, really analyzing what is it that makes something look deeper? What does it make something look shallower? And deconstructing, and then figuring out how do you then represent that on paper? How do you represent that in paint? But it's really not representing. How do you create that same experience using another medium? Okay? That's what we do when we, have, when we have videos, right? What are videos? Is anything moving in a video? It's just one image after another image, right? But we figured out how to use a different medium to give off the appearance of motion. As opposed to if I have like something and then an arrow and then something else, that's, oh, that means that this moved to that. But that's, that, that's representing motion. A video actually appears like motion, but this is real motion. Like the thing is actually moving, okay? So if you want something to present in the same way, to be experienced in the same way, what do you need to do? You need to deconstruct it and then reconstruct it. It's a different medium. That's not the same thing as making something which, simply repre- which is simply a parallel that represents it. So let me give you an example. There's a difference between uh, the arm of a doll and the arm of a robot. Sure. What's the difference? One can animate itself. So what, what, when you make an arm of a doll, what are you trying to do? Like You're trying to make something that represents a doll so that the kid can play as if they have a baby, right? right. This represents a baby, and therefore I want the different parts of baby represented, right? Now, there is some element of making it appear that way depending on like, how sophisticated you are, right? But you could, you could be very simplistic, right? You could just like, literally take a, a ball and like, stick some things in to represent arms, and like, depending on the age of your kid, they'll be fine. It represents a baby. On the other hand, if you want a ar- robot to have an arm, what you want to do is you want to take, well, how does an arm present itself in the world? In this case, we don't mean the experience of seeing it, we mean its function, right? And you have to deconstruct what the arm does, or the hand does, and then reconstruct it with other things. So for instance, if I wanted to make a robotic hand, what would I have to do with my hand? What would I have to do with my hand first? Deconstruct it. So how would I deconstruct it? Well, maybe that might not be the best way. Maybe I want to think about, because what am I trying to do? I'm trying to make something that looks like this or something that functions like this? So I have to think, okay, well, I have to break my arm down maybe into its different functions. Right? In fact, that's actually one of the reasons some of the really interesting robotic arms figured out that if you use the kind of materials we can make robots out of, making something looks like this doesn't really get you the same functions. Using a more tentacle-like structure can get you basically weird. So the thing might actually be very different to achieve the same effect. Okay? Um, just to give you an example with, with going back to art, everyone knows the idea that there's, con- there's contrast colors, the complementary colors, there's red versus green, right? So if you have a red object and you want to show it as having depth, what kind, of, what, what, what kind of highlights should you use on it if you're painting? Green highlights, or anti-highlights actually, because green causes you to see the red as jutting out. Now, no one would think that if I'm painting a red pepper, I should put green stripes on it, right? But if you have that thing to see depth and appreciate how color works, you realize, you know what? I really want to make that, pu- that pepper have that texture to it, I might want to subtly add some streaks of green in very subtle ways that make the red parts jut out more to the observer. If I want to get something that can grasp things of different shapes 
at different angles, in different ways, with different levels of, 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 of rigidity, maybe making a thing that's very blocky with little things like metal fingers are probably not the best way. Maybe something that's more like a, a plastic tentacle might achieve that better. So there's deconstructing and then reconstructing using another medium is a very different process than simply something that represents something else. Yeah? This might be quite far-fetched, but is with like the child drawing situation, is that like you're like representing kind of like the essential like idea of something and then like a, an actual drawing is like representing like the actual existence of something? There is that. That's why children tend to draw their parents very high is what they're trying to symbolize is the relative stature socially and in their minds rather than their physical height. That the children are ignorant as to the height difference. Okay. Um, whereas when you're like making a life-size, you're trying to like actually recreate the experience of seeing them in existence. Okay. So everyone sees that sphere chart over there? So is that a representation of the spheres or is that... Um, a reconstruction of the spheros. Representation, right? Spheros don't look like that. I don't know why the spheros are balls. I don't know what those lines are there. They probably represent something. I would pose to that, by the way, because it's like misleading. Okay. Did you voice your opposition? I voiced it quite vocally, but I was overruled. So I was overruled by the people that make it. The people that made it. What? Okay. So. A map. What is a map? A guide. It's a representation, right? Kind of like a map. It is kind of like a map. It's a lousy map. Yeah. A map that shows arbitrarily things in an arbitrary manner to make the map look simpler, but it's not actually useful for navigating is a bad map. Right. Okay. A map where you like ignore certain roads because they destroy the symmetry is not a good map. We're hitting a, a, a sensitive spot. I can see. Yes. You know. You know. Have you ever seen a map of the world? It's yeah, they're all bad. No. They're all bad because the world is really round. Now, what? Globes are great. Actually, there are maps that are really good of the world. Well, those are actually pretty. It depends what you have to decide what your map is supposed to represent. To what, for instance, if you're navigating, keeping the the, the latitude and longitude lines at right angles is the most important part, and you can just compensate for the fact that distance is warped, which is why naval maps are all distorted in the shape and size. It depends what you want your representation to represent. Okay. Um, some sort of motion influence between three things and that kind of feeds back on the That could be any number of things, right? Okay. This is more complicated, but this could be the theory. Anything. Anything. Just as long as this thing is somehow connected to this thing in a stronger way than it is to this thing, but this thing to get to this thing has to go through that thing and then we're fine. Right? On the other hand, right, if I actually know what something is, and I try and take some aspect of it and really recreate it in another level of reality using another medium, that's a different process. Okay? 
That's what artists do with the experience of things. So visual artists do with the experience of seeing things, right? And you know, musicians do that. What is, how do you use sound to, 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 what it, to recreate experiences? Audio artists do that, right? Sculpture using you know, more things. Engineers do that with functioning. Right? Those are very different than just making symbols. Okay, yeah. Um, I just had this thought a few days ago. Is there an issue with Jews being sculptors? Yes. An issue doesn't mean it's outright forbidden. It means there are rules that you have to follow. Just like there are rules with there are issues with Jews being a chef. Okay. What about hedge trimmers? Same thing. <laughs> okay. They're basically rules of everything. Yes. Like, okay. 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 So now. Would you not separate if you had a like first grade drawing level hand? really detailed elaborate hand and then you had an artificial hand? Well, I would say that the detailed drawing of a hand is 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 um, is recreating the experience of seeing the hand. The artificial hand is recreating the function of the hand. Okay. Whereas the child's drawing of the hand is, is some sort of symbolic representation of a hand. Okay. Right. So, right, things, I mean, things, things have both how they appear visually and how they function. So engineers care more about reconstructing the function of a thing, and artists care more about reconstructing the experience of a thing. And obviously those are not so diverse because in real life we often those two things mix together, right? If you're having an artificial hand on a person, as much as a tentacle might be a better way to capture all the functions of a human hand, I don't know if we are so keen on having people walking around tentacles instead of actual hands. So we might want something that maybe sacrifices a little more function but appears more as a hand allow for us to like get along with each other and not be freaked out. Open question. Yeah. Let's try that. Let's see. I'm just curious now. What do you mean by my tendency to experiment? It just looks like they're... Can I evoke a face or not? Yeah, it looks like it does. It kind of evokes a bird to me, because I think it's the beak. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I'm saying, I'm saying that's <laughs> part of, part of, when we're looking at that, part of what we're doing is not just like, what might you have meant symbolically, but also like, what does this look like? Being on some level, it does recreate my experience to see. Right. Where do we draw the line between symbolism and recreating? Well, I think the issue is, the issue is whether you are trying to do something which, on this other level, is as basically a, the, the, the original but in a different context versus you're, you're relying on somebody else filling in the gaps for you. So you this, a portrait, right? If you decide you want something that, that looks like a human head on two-dimensional canvas, 
well, then basically the the best you're gonna get is a life is a, like a, a, you know a, a good life a good life representation of a portrait. Right? That's, you're gonna have to have a por- portrait painting. That that's that's it. Like you you can't have anything that is more like a face than in its experience of seeing it than that. On the other hand, when I draw a smiley face, I'm relying very heavily on your mind to do what? To fill in the gaps. Now, I realize you're going to now make an argument, doesn't the mind always fill in the gaps about everything, okay? So, if you wanted to make that technical distinction, you simply say we have to differentiate between where the mind is filling in the gaps um, in, in a way that is part of the experience or it's secondary to the experience. When I see a smiley face, it, it's a different experience than seeing a face. It just happens to, for some interesting reasons, also evoke to me the concept of a face. Whereas when I see the portrait, that actually looks like a face. And maybe it's also the same thing as symbolizing a face. That. But the, 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 I want to use the word symbolizing to connote to, to when we're not doing this process of trying to reconstruct the same thing in another medium. We're trying to just get the idea into someone's head. Right. Right. You can remember words can change, right? You right. but you need you need two words to differentiate these two concepts. Okay. So let me give you. A, yeah. So, but with the with the idea of reconstruction, we're not saying that there's like an ultimate reconstruction. It's about the problem. It's not like there's like this one representation of reality that is like the most accurate representation. Why not? Well, because if you have like a really good drawing of a hand, and then you have, and you're like, wow, this is a great representation of a hand, and then you like have an actual photograph of a hand, and you're like, oh, actually, this is a. Well, I would argue that those are two different mediums. Okay, so a better, better artist. I would say that you you could you could converge you could you could converge on more and more and more and more, so that you have some kind of at least at least in conception have a kind of an ideal. Sure, why not? Now, whether that's realistic always is a separate thing. Could be the medium can't do that, right? There are limitations of the medium, but in principle, why not? Okay, Okay. so here's the thing. The Alter Rebbe, um, when he first, one of the things, the Alter Rebbe was not raised as a chassid. He did not raise with chassidic ideas. He was a mystic. He was a a rabbinic authority. He was very, very wise. He knew the entire Talmud, blah, 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 blah. But he was not actually raised with Hasidic ideas. And he went to the success of the Baal Shem Tov, the Magad of Mizrich, to learn Hasidus when he was 18. He turned out fine. He turned out fine. That's true. He, you know, he was special. Like, really special. Pretty legit. His father was a Hasid, but his father was in strict orders not to, like, tell him any Hasidic ideas ever. That he shouldn't know any Hasidic ideas. So that he should discover it on his own. He was destined to be a disciple of the Balshemtov's disciple, not of the Balshemtov himself. So he had to find what? Um, Baruch. Just Baruch. I believe so. Those days only need one name. What? The Magid of Mizrich. What did he mean, Baruch Zalman? No, Zalman is his middle name. Oh, it's a double name. Yeah. So the Alter Rebbe, at the age of eighteen. He asked his wife if he could do what was customary in those days, which is to go off and find the proper way to serve God. And she said yes, and he said, I'll see you in two years. And um, he went off. How old was he when he got married? Fifteen. Which was common back then. Different era. Anyway, so one of the things he learned, one of the things that he learned is that, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, 
this and I'll explain it. He said, Chesed, you guys heard of the sphere of Chesed? Yeah, yeah. So he said, he learned that Chesed is love and Gvura is fear. Have you heard this idea before? Yes. The sphere of Chesed is love and the sphere of Gvura is fear. And he, this, when he first heard it, he thought that was cute. And later on, he realized how profound it was. Now, I'm going to ask you what's so profound about that idea. I mean, it's something you tell like every beginner who ever shows up in a chassidist class. There's these different attributes. There's the chesed, which is the loving kindness side. There's the gvura, which is like the awe and fear side. Like, what's, the, what's so profound here? Yeah. What did he know about spheros? Everything. He was, a, he was a Kabbalist before he went to study chassidus. So he like, but I don't know everything. So what does that mean? Well, he knew the Zohar. He knew all the writings of the Arizal. He knew all the writings of the Kabbalists before that. He prayed using Kabbalistic meditations, okay. um, all that stuff. The opposite of love is not hate. Mm. Yeah. Stop. What word did you just use? Represents. Represents. What did the altar of originally think that, yeah, of course, chesed, love, they go together because what represents chesed? Love. What represents gvura? Notice I've been using these Hebrews and not translating them. Fear or awe, whatever word you want to use right now, I don't care. Meaning, that how do you understand this idea? There's this thing called chesed. Do you know what chesed is? No. The sphere of chesed? You don't know what it is? And I don't know what it is? And nobody knows what it is? I don't know. However, is there something that can use as a representation of it? Wait. Yeah. Not in the... Well, it depends what you mean by no. Like, do you know what chocolate tastes like? Yeah, but that's like, you have to have a direct experience of, right? Okay. So, like, if you want to know what the sphere of chesed is, you have to directly experience God revealing himself to you directly, without any filters, through the sphere of chesed. Mm, it's more like an embodiment. It's like, well, some do. Ones with prophetic awareness. But... But then when you go around saying love is love isn't chesed, love is something that humans experience, which we can use to be an analogy to represent chesed. Okay? Ever anyone ever take a class where the teacher wanted to explain something used an analogy? Right here. Yeah. The the analogy is merely meant to represent the thing in some respect. It is not actually the thing, right? Moreover, it's not even the thing. It's not even a recreation of the thing. It's not a reconstruction of the thing, right? Experiencing the analogy is not the same thing in any way as experiencing the original, right? Well, if there were no parallels, there are parallels, right? Such as when they tell you that, like, um, what's 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 something that that's completely not true, but people use it as an analogy. Um, When I was in when I was in school, and they taught us about gravity. So it's like, like if, you ha- like if you take something on a string and you spin it around, so it keeps going around because the string keeps pulling it back to the center, right? That's a good analogy to learn about gravity. It's not actually how gravity works at all, but it re- you know, if you're teaching you know, middle school kids about gravity, that works. It gives some kind of sense of it. There's some parallel. The thing is going around. It's moving towards the center. It's more or less the same thing. 
Except try and find that string out in reality. It doesn't exist. There's no string connecting the Earth and the Moon. Go look for it. No one's bothered by that in sixth grade. They're like, wait, where's the string? I remember asking my teacher. She, she thinks, so goes around and says, wait a minute. So I said, so how does the moon know which side the string is on to go this way or that way, right? The moon's traveling through space. Like, where's the, where's the string? How does it know where the, is the Earth on this side to turn this way? Is the Earth on that side to turn that way? It doesn't know. I mean, the, the, the ball on the string has the string there, right? So there are things that you can use to explain things and you understand the concept, but the actual thing you're using to explain is only similar in some very limited sense because it's merely a representation that helps convey a concept. That's not the thing, it's not the thing itself. Yeah. So I'm assuming that Shimon Bar Yochai wrote about Chesed as a sphera. Did he preface in saying, my explanation is just a representative? No, because he experienced the things. In fact, that's the beginning of the Zohar. He opens up at how like, he and all the angels and all of the departed souls got together and had a little fabregan about the different Kabbalistic stuff they experienced. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. Okay. I didn't have that one, I did one. It was great. Okay, what? I said I didn't have that experience at his cover. Okay, well, okay. So now, so this idea that, you know, God has this attribute of chesed, and that's like human love. And God has this attribute of gvura, and it's like human fear. But what are the, like, the intuitive, that's just representation. What was the deeper thing that he learned? That the love is not just a representation of it. It is actually a reconstruction of that thing. In other words, like this, when a Jew, and this is a sense of loves God, when a Jew has love of God that comes from their godly soul, that is not an analogy that represents the div- a divine attribute. That is actually a, a reconstruction of that divine attribute. It's not the divine attribute itself. So using an analogy to explain something. When a Jew has love of God coming from their godly soul, that is to God's sphere of chesed like a life-like portrait is to an actual human face. It is not merely representation, but actually gives off a similar experience, recreates the experience of what that thing is using a different medium. Yeah. When a Jew loves God, okay, when, the God the, 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 when, the, when a Jew loves God, that love of God is not a representation of God's sphere of chesed. It is actually a reconstruction of that. So it's like a portrait to a face rather than a smiley face to a face. Yeah. So is it only the love of God and the fear of God, or can it be the love of another man and the fear of God? So the Altar is later on chapter um, Thirty-two going to say this that love of a love of and I'm going to be very specific love of fellow Jew and love of God those are package deal okay and this is specifically the love of God is experienced from the godly soul's faculty of love not the human human your your animal soul also is the faculty of to love God that is not actually a recreation of the sphere so this idea of descending means. This process of taking something, deconstructing it, and then reconstructing it using other mediums, you end up with the same kind of a thing in a different context, not just a representation of it. Okay? So for instance, an artificial arm, how do you get an artificial arm? You take a real arm, deconstruct its function, and then recreate that function using something else. You're not just make a picture of an arm to represent that's where the arm goes. So with this, idea of reconstruction, then you could also say about 
chesed and chesed and like human love that it deconstructions reconstructs in both directions that like God creates human love as a reconstruction of of chesed and human love as a reconstruction of of chesed. Right. Okay. Which means that on the one hand, humans are. Let's be more specific here. The godly soul in a Jew actually is, is a reconstruction of the spheros, which means if you have a fully healthy functioning godly soul, you can use yourself to understand and experience the spheros. What if your godly soul is all warped and messed up and not so good? You gotta get, get, peel away that klipa. We, well, we're not talking about klipa. What if it's undeveloped? A book can be a guide, but like you actually have to fix it. Like, like if you're if if you're from an artificial hand and you're trying to use that, you're saying all I know about real hands is that this is meant to be a replacement for a real hand. But the artificial hand I'm working off of is completely broken. There's no, I have no hope of figuring what a real hand is. If I have an artificial hand and I don't know what a real hand is, I start poking around with it and it's a working artificial hand. What could I figure out? A lot. A lot about what a real hand is supposed to be, right? If I have a working godly soul that's faculties are fully functional. Can I use that then to truly understand and experience what the spheres are like? Yeah, because they're not just representatives and analogies, they're actual reconstructions. Or to put this in, in more extreme terms, what if God would like to, instead of just being God in charge of the whole world, what if God would like to actually take those same sphere-like abilities and make them part of the world, working from the world from within? Then you would have the faculties of a godly soul. Right. So God is actually taking his own abilities and saying, how do I reconstruct them and put them into a human being? Rather than just having something which is an analogy to represent it. Yes? Why are the spheres on a map? I, in Chabad, they're only in one place on a map. In the Chabad teachings, they're only one, ever, one time ever put on a map. And that was to explain Chassidus to a non-Jew who was trying the Mittler Rebbe and the Mittler wanted to explain spheres, so he drew a map of them. But in general, Chabad opposes to making maps of spheres because they're misleading. No, he made a much more simple map. He just put Kesser and then made a row, and then a row, and then a row, and then Malchus at the bottom. What does that map represent? It represents some of the relationships between the spheres. Like again, if you took a map of highways and cities and you just arbitrarily picked some highways to make it look nice. Oh, but like, it's not meaning. Yeah, I mean, like, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, I could take a book of Kabbalah, Kabbalah maps, like, the, in other books, but then you have, like, literally a whole book of different maps, depending on what you're looking at. It's like, why don't we make a, why don't we make a diagram of human anatomy? Well, we, you can't make a diagram. You can make many diagrams. What do you want a diagram? And in certain diagrams, you leave out certain things because they're not relevant for that particular issue. But if you want to know the whole thing, you have to understand the body. You can't just draw a picture. So what about that one? Like, what is that aiming to? I don't know. I have yet to figure that out. Because <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. It's like a mixture of a few different diagrams that are found and like, it looks nice. It's symmetrical. <laughs> like, I don't know why Das is like hanging out, like yeah, completely disconnected. Well, it's or connected it's to Kesser and Tferis, right? Yeah, but it's not connected it's to Chachma and Bina. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure what that's supposed to represent. It looks nice. Teachers can make reference to it. That's what I was told. <laughs> yes. So, 
said that if you have a functional godly soul, which implies you could have a dysfunctional godly soul. Correct. Yeah, can you expand on that? Well, let's figure out what a functional godly soul looks like, and then we can ask ourselves, does mine look like that? It's like, once you know what a healthy body is, you're like, hmm, my body doesn't seem to be so healthy. That's the, the, the problem with dysfunction or, or sickness is that you actually first have to start with the other thing. Describe functional or healthy and then work backwards. Yes? If we were looking at the really long range of foot-to-head souls, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If we were looking at that, would it be identical to... To the health of one's godly soul. No, no, because a healthy foot doesn't look anything like a healthy head, and a sick foot doesn't look anything like a sick head. So you can have There's a you could be a head soul with a really unhealthy godly soul, or vice versa. Yeah, but that's a discussion for another time. Yes. Um, but there's in the reconstruction, God reconstruction. There's no need for the deconstruction first. There is actually, because you can't reconstruct something unless you deconstruct. Well, you still have to. So there's still like there is a process of deconstruction that takes place. Okay, because someone doesn't create a human arm. Fine. So then, but so then the deconstruction is taken for granted. But there's there's still an element of deconstruction, and you have to know how to take it apart. Okay. Now, I just want to point out: Are there differences between seeing a human face and seeing a portrait? Yes. For instance, right? If you actually an actual human face, it doesn't matter what direction you look at it from; it will always look like. A human face, right? But if you have a portrait that is, that is a frontal portrait and then you try to look at the side to see the profile, do you get to see the profile of the person's face? No, right? So even if something is a reconstruction of the thing, there are major differences between the original and the reconstruction. It, right, the artificial hand really does reconstruct the function of a hand, but not necessarily every function of the hand, right? For instance, the hand has the, as, um, you know, even if you get the gripping part right, that doesn't mean you get the sensory part right, that you can actually feel being touched. Okay? And this is usually the case, is that when you try and reconstruct something, you are able to reconstruct some element of it very, very well, but because you're using a different medium, you often lose other things about it. Sure. Yeah. When I asked you a question about the Gemara where it was like, just like Hashem, this, our soul, that, mm-hmm. you said there was a Medrash where they go through and say, like, just like our soul is like this, so too God is like that. All the qualities enumerated there are qualities only of a healthy soul or like inherent qualities of a soul period? Those are inherent qualities of a soul period. Okay. So we're, we're talking here about, about faculties. Those are just basic things. So those aren't related to like how healthy... Is, is, health, would... like, is that... I guess what I'm asking is like we have, when we say a person is sick, sometimes we mean that like they have a cough, but like all of their abilities are normal, they just have a cough. Yeah. And other times we say that like a person has a developmental delay, which is different than having a cough. So, so it depends like, on, it depends, it depends on, the, that thing is referring to just generic characteristics, which by the way, th- those things are not even necessarily distinctly Jewish. Those are just referring to soul versus body in general, not even soul, godly soul. So is, is, can the godly soul have like developmental delays or just like sickness? Like, yeah, it can have all those things. Okay. In fact, everything that exists in human beings is a parallel to something that exists in... Okay. So the way it's going to work is like this. This is... Have... God... Slash...
Okay. The way it's going to work is like this. The relationship between these two is that this is a process of Reconstruction. So God, as he is manifest through the spheres, is then reconstructed in the godly soul manifesting through its faculties. So analogies for this would be like a face and a portrait, a real arm and an artificial limb, where something of the actual thing itself is being brought into reality using a different medium. Which means if this is proper, if this is as it should be, you really do know something about what this really is. But the relationship here, though, is one the human relationship with the human faculties, that is merely a representation. That was my so, so this is a face portrait Got it? <laughs> a, the human and their faculties relative to the godless and their faculties is like comparing an emoji to a portrait. And then if you, the actual real human face would be like God in the spheres. So this is taking something about how God manifests and reconstructing it within the human being. That's the godless soul and its faculties. What human experiences and their human, and human faculties, which is true of every Jew and their animal soul and all non-Jews, that is merely like an emoji comparison. Like the little smiley faces. Yeah. So you said that the Alter Rebbe, or which Rebbe was it that didn't learn Hasidus? The Alter Rebbe didn't learn Hasidus until he was 18. So was he technically a Hasidic? Or not? I mean, well, technically a Hasidic, doesn't it? What do you think? <laughs> well, I think if you are a Hasidic Rebbe, then I think it's built into the definition, right? <laughs> but if he's never learned Hasidus, how could he be a Hasidic Rebbe? Well, he wasn't Hasidic at the time. He became Hasidic. There are Hasidim who were born and raised as Hasidim. There are Hasidim who became Hasidim. Could you be Can you be a Hasid with like, if you practice according to the ways of Hasidim but have never learned Hasidism, or have learned Hasidic and don't Hasidism and don't practice according? That is a very good question, but that goes far beyond what I want to talk about now. But it's a very good question as to what exactly the the adjective Hasidic means specifically. Okay, let's use one more example. Okay. Hand. Artificial hand. Hand on a doll. You see the same, you see the parallel there? This is an actual thing that I use as an extension of myself to manipulate the world around me. God forbid that hand could be removed. And we could make something of, made out of some other material that could kind of capture some of those functions, right? But then what's on the edge of a doll, sticking out the side of the doll? What's that? That just represents the hand on a human being so the child can have more realistic play. Yeah. Can we go through this with actual, like chesed? We're going to do that in the chapter. But what the, we're going to do that in the chapter as we go through the chapter.
like but what our actual human faculties are that yes we are going to do that Ooh. that is what most of the chapter is about Yay. but the setting up the structure so that's what he means here by from which they have descended this what he terms here is descending here is this idea of re, what i'm calling reconstructing where you take the original take it apart and figure out how to make another version of the same thing using other in another medium another material another context and that's the thing that the Alter Rebbe has discovered is actually true, that when a Jew loves God, that is not simply an analogy for God's chesed. That is actually a reconstruction and therefore some way of actually experiencing something of what God's chesed is actually like. Which, by the way, means that when a Jew loves another Jew, from their godly soul, whose love are you actually experiencing in some sense? God's love, right? Take if you think that, right? If if a Jew's love coming from their godly soul is a reconstruction of God's chesed, then when one Jew loves another Jew, that is actually a way of God transmitting His love of that Jew through another Jew, which really does change how we think of the mitzvah of Yisrael. Now, doesn't it? Is it your love, or are you just channeling God's love? But that's a topic for another time. Yeah. Uh, when I love my dog, is that an emoji or like just totally not related? That's an emoji. When you love your dog. When I love my dog, that's just totally unrelated because that's just a, you know, a theoretical thing that doesn't actually exist. I don't have a dog either. Yeah, but you but seem I, like the kind of person that if you had a dog, you would actually love the dog. <laughs> I, it's funny you say that. Um, my sister would very... I, I, have I could be wrong. Okay, so I, I stand corrected. When, when people, when a Jew loves a dog... Is that, I'm saying, is that an emoji no. relative to no. God? That's just not. Oh, that's that. You know, because let, let, it'll become clear as we go through the rest of the chapter. Okay. Fine. So, which means like this the godly soul's functioning is not just an analogy for the spheres, it's actually reconstructing. So, it is taking the spheres and then having them actually function on a more limited human level. No, descended is fine. And the thing is that the idea needs to be explained, right? Sometimes there isn't, sometimes, sometimes the concept, you know, even if I use the word reconstructed, you wouldn't know that. That's why I have to use analogies, right? And I took a math class, so I remember the first time we learned, um, we, we learned um, the term um, isomorphism. And it's like a very common word in mathematics. And like once you know what the word means, it's just such a great word. But if you don't know what the word means, like, <laughs> you need to explain to you with analogies and examples, right? And so translating isomorphism into another word, if you, like, if you don't speak English and you don't know math, translating isomorphism into another word is not going to help you, right? Now, the thing about chassidus is chassidus tends to use pretty, Torah in general tends to use everyday words. So you don't have fancy words like isomorphism. You have words like descended, progression, um, connected. But those words often refer to very specific concepts, which you know, often has to be explained. Okay. Well, we're really moving along. Okay. <laughs> now, here's the thing. If something is reconstructed, then its basic fundamental structure should be preserved, right? That makes sense? So, for instance, in a portrait, what is the structure you're preserving from the face? Like the proportions? Right, the proportions. Not the proportions as they're on the paper, but the proportions as they are seen, are seen right? 
which is actually quite you know a, a com- hard thing really to cool. do. What? Artists are very talented. Right. Okay. So whatever is that internal structure that really allows the thing to really function for what it is, that has to be preserved. Got it? Okay. So then the question is, well, what is the internal structure of the spheres? How do they relate and work within each other such that our godly soul could actually be a really functional reconstruction of the spheres? Okay. Which are subdivided into two. Are we not going to talk about descended? That was descended. That was whole last hour was explaining what it means descended. Descended means that they're a reconstruction of the original and not just representation. That's... Sometimes just because God is like not just and descend seems like. But that's not what the word means here. How does this different correspond? Well, they correspond, but there's different ways of corresponding. Do the emojis correspond to the human face? But for a different reason than the portrait corresponds to the human face, right? So the correspondence is one thing. The why they correspond. Okay, so what are the structure of the spheres? They're subdivided into two. Okay. I'm going to stop there. Why is that information important? Let's think. Why is it important to know that they're subdivided into two? There's ten spheres, they're subdivided into two. Why, would I, why is that important to know? Okay. Sorry, subdivided into two, like each sphere is divided into two? No, no, the totality of all ten are then subdivided into two. Why is it important to do that? Why is it important to categorize them? I mean, yes, that means that they're similar different, but why why does that matter? We're going to probably discuss one part of it. Let me ask you a question. Is this book a guide to spheros? Spheros 101? Why are we talking about spheros? I don't care about spheros. I mean, you care about spheros because you're like some sort of mystic, but I don't care about spheros. Because our souls, functions, our souls, faculties are what? A reconstruction of the spheros. So if you would like your faculties to work properly, what model do you need to work off of? Because it's a reconstruction of them. And if the, so what is the first thing you need to know about the spheros? Is that they are subdivided into? So then what do you need about your faculties? And what if they're not subdivided into two? Oh, then you had, oh gosh, you have major problems. That's right. Right? If your faculties are not subdivided into two, you gotta go to the sphere doctor. You need to go to a, you need to go to a sphere doctor right away. Well, actually, not a sphere doctor. You need to go to a godly soul's faculties doctor right away. Okay. Oh right. Yes. Rabbi? No. Well, they, they come in various degrees. There's Hasidic Rebbes, teachers, mentors, you know. Are they like Kabbalistic kind of witch doctors? Yeah, what do they do? Stay away from those. They teach and they guide and they provide insight and direction and exercises. Is it too much of a question yeah, to ask what kind of person would need to go to someone like that? Everybody. Is it kind of like therapy? No, it's more like, it's more like, um, it's more like apprenticeship. Have you ever heard of someone having to need it? I'm so confused. Have you ever... I have one, yes. Is it a... Yeah, yeah it's a mishpia. Uh-huh. A mishpia, and ultimately, you know, whatever. Well, I mean, that part of what this class is giving generic guidelines, but that's why you need actual mentorship, yeah. I don't know. Ask, ask, ask uh, Mrs. Gustetten or um, <laughs> or someone else. I mean, generally speaking, women when you start getting into the details of things, 
men should only be get, providing general broad instructions and basic basic ideas. But as you get very specific, women should be mentoring women and men should be mentoring men as a general rule. And then there's the role of the Hasidic Rebbe, which like, like lays out all the truths, fundamentally. But let's go on. Okay, so there need to be two. Okay, now I want to talk about two. Just the number two. Just the number two. It doesn't have grandparents. <laughs> it does not have grandparents. Okay. What is the meaning of the number two? Binary. There's more than one. There is more than one, okay? If you cannot differentiate between one thing and another thing, is it really two? No. No. So, right. It's not really two, right? So if your faculties are going to function properly and they have two cat- they, they're, they're, they're subdivided into two groups, right? That means as you actually experience your faculties, you should be able to be able to distinguish between one group and? Yeah. And what if it's like a big chullant inside of you? Yeah, right. So this is this is an issue, right? In other words, now, okay. So the first thing about two is that two means you need to be able to draw a distinction. The distinction needs to be made clear. Okay. So one of the cool things they do in law school is they ask a person, they create a scenario and ask a person, well, what should the law be in that case? And the answer is rather obvious. And then you ask another scenario, what should the law be in that case? And the answer is rather obvious because the cases are really different. So in one case, the guy should be guilty. In one case, the guy should be innocent. But then what do they start doing? Yeah. Start changing the cases so those two cases start sounding somewhere more similar to each other. And one side, you started with guilty. And one side, you started with innocent. I'll give you an example. This is banal. But, okay. A guy decides that he wants somebody's money and kills them. Is he guilty of murder? Yes. yes. Okay. A guy um, has an epileptic seizure and falls on someone else and kills them. Is he guilty of murder? No. No. I'm just saying, is he guilty of murder? No, okay, right. Now, could I move the culpability less from just shooting a guy for his wallet and more from the culpability of having epileptic seizure? And at some point I have to figure out what distinguishes the guilty from not guilty, Mm -hmm. and that gets actually difficult, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when you discover you may not actually have two concepts in your mind, you may just have gut responses. And delineating two things is actually quite hard. Okay, well, what? I didn't say you should. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, if your faculties are spo- are supposed to be structured like the spheres, because a reconstruction of them, and the spheres are divided into two, that means that the distinction between those two groups should be very clear. Which means the distinction between those faculties and ourselves should be very clear. Okay, that's number one. Number two, are these two things two separate independent things, or are they two parts of a whole? So you have two parts of whole, as important as it is to distinguish between the two, you also have to understand what's the relationships between the two, right? Once you've said what makes this different from that, but how do they relate and function as a whole? Okay? So, let's use just a quick example, which is not the example of, and, and here we're going we're gonna to go through, but just a, a quick example of this idea. A classroom is made up of two fundamental roles. What are those two roles? Teacher and student, please distinguish between the role of the teacher and the role of the student so that they are clearly distinct from each other. What? The teacher always talks more. Really? No, the teacher's learning. That's actually in really, in, in, in traditional Jewish education, the teacher talks less. I wasn't thinking just Jewish. Yeah, it's fine. 
Teacher has the knowledge. Teacher has the knowledge. Student is receiver, learning. Receiver, beginner, well, and receiver. It's always. I feel like sometimes the students student will know more about different subjects and the teacher will maybe know less about You can still be a student. Like well, this is where we get into the issues about drawing distinctions. Yeah, so we need to be clear. The teacher, the teacher is the imparter of knowledge and the student is the recipient of knowledge. Being the imparter of knowledge means you A, have to have the knowledge and be able to impart it. And to be the recipient of knowledge means you must lack the knowledge. Lack doesn't just mean you don't have it, by the way. What does lack mean? You should you, have it. Yeah, you don't have it, but you should have it, right? So if you're not in a state where you don't have something, you feel like you should have knowledge, are you really a student? You walk into a class ignorant of a topic. Does that make you a student? No. no. You have to have a sense, I'm ignorant, and I shouldn't be ignorant of this. And then you also have to have the skills for, not just for, for, Receiving the knowledge, right? It's not enough to aspire to know. You actually have to be able to receive the knowledge as it's imparted, right? So we have to distinguish between know, between the imparter of knowledge and the recipient of knowledge, between the one who has the knowledge and the skill to impart it and the one who lacks the knowledge and the skill to receive it. What happens when we start mixing those things around? What happens to a classroom? Does it work very well? It's chaos. Okay. Now, why might we do that? For fun. Because of our great friend, power hierarchies, right? Where, where do we associate as who having the power between the imparter of knowledge and the recipient of knowledge? Who has the power? Imparter. imparter. And do people like being in the less powerful position? No. So therefore, might the student try and shift to taking on a teaching role to exert some kind of sense of equivalence of power? That could happen. Or conversely, could the teacher be uncomfortable with the supposed immorality of being in the more powerful position? And then try and like shift things to a place where the student is the out becomes the imparter of knowledge. Okay. Now that might be wonderful and great for feeling all equal and whatever. Does that really an effective way to really impart knowledge? No. no. So those roles have to be made clear to both. Now that also means you have to really live up to them, right? The teacher better know and be able to impart, and the student better really realize that they lack, and also better be able to receive. But then there's the question of how do you go about having the imparting, interacting with the receiving, right? How do those two things fit together, right? Should the teacher do a lot of standing up and talking? Maybe, maybe not. That's an interesting question, right? Right. I mean, so, 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 there, so keeping the roles distinct is half the equation. The other half of the equation is now that they're distinct, how do they fit together to make that whole the learning environment? Yeah. Is it a problem? If the teacher learns something new from a student, it's a good classroom. If the teacher is, if the te student is imparting knowledge, that's different. The imparting knowledge means the student had the knowledge, and then and the student the teacher was lacking the knowledge, and the student received the no teacher received the knowledge from the student, which just is basically flipped the roles. The act of teaching, when done properly, should increase the teacher's knowledge in a variety of ways. But that's not the same thing as a student imparting knowledge. Because imparting knowledge means you have it and then you're transmitting it to someone else. If that's happening, that usually means that the, that the teaching is going off course. Or, alternatively, it's not a real teacher-student dynamic. It's a different kind of dynamic. Right? There's a dynamic of colleagues. Like discussion. Right, and that's a different dynamic. And it has its place and it has its role. Right? Where it's a collaborative effort, it's something different. Right? When you sit and learn Becharusa, it should not be teacher and student. It should be collaborative. I'm not saying which is better, which is worse, but they are different things. And when those things get mixed up, the advantages of one get lost 
And the advantage of the other get lost, it's like trying to make a chalant and a chocolate pie in the same bowl at the same time. In your body. It is gross. That's why I picked that analogy. Okay. So, now, again, so if you mean should a teacher learn from their students, yes. Should the students be knowing something relating to what is being taught, the actual subject itself, and then they're imparting that to the teacher? If that's happening, then the teacher's really not that qualified of a teacher, and they maybe should change the pretenses of nature of what's going on. Okay. Um, in fact, in traditional Jewish learning, the collaborative effort of equals who are different as students is something that they're supposed to do primarily not with the teacher present, and the teacher is meant to actually just give them um, structure for that. So the teacher gives them information, the teacher gives them guidance to how to then collaboratively process that, and then the teacher challenges their understanding of that to deepen it. But most of the work of receiving is being done by collaborative effort between the students themselves, absent the teacher's presence. Okay, that requires a very devoted kind of student though, right? Classic yeshiva curriculum for 18-year-olds and up is that they spend three-plus hours a day learning Gemara in depth. How much of that time is class? None. None of it. Usually, some, usually one, two, three hours a week is class time. And the students are expected to come to class already knowing the material well and thoroughly and deeply. So what the teacher is doing is challenging and deepening what they've already understood rather than... Now, that's a higher level of student, right? But you get a higher level of knowledge. So the idea that teachers should be doing most of the talking depends on what kind of student. Now, on the other hand, when, when you're like five-year-olds and you're teaching them Parsha, you really don't want to make that a collaborative effort amongst the five-year-olds. It's a bad idea. Right? So... So... We need it. So if we, have th- if we have a whole that is made of two parts, we need to know what makes them different, A, and B, how do they then function, fit together? Yeah. Isn't that where we got like many, many moons ago, like the idea that to have two things, you really have three things because like there's something that's uniting them? Right. What, differ- right. what makes A different than B, B different than A, and then what overall makes them fit together in a, as a whole? And that's what we need to do now. So even though there are 10 spheres, our first task that we really need to understand, and that's actually what the chapter is eating, is if God's spheres function in this two grouping system, right? Then if you want your godly souls, to, your godly faculties to function, regardless of what level of development you're on, it always is going to need to follow this two structures, this system of two parts, which means you need to have clear what is the division between them and how do they, and how do they interact with each other. And if that's not working, then your godly soul is very dysfunctional. Okay? So that's the line of, so if we just summarize the line thing, whatever stage of functioning your godly soul is on, it has 10 faculties, 10 abilities. Those 10 abilities correspond to the 10 spheres because they're actually reconstructions of those spheres. And therefore, they're going to follow the same structure as the spheres. And the first thing you need to know about the structure of the spheres is that the spheres function as two distinct groups. And so we need to know what makes them distinct and how do those groups interact so that your faculties can function as two distinct groups that interact properly. And that is actually difficult work. It's a lot of work to understand it. It is much more work to then actually implement it and actually start identifying yourself where are these faculties 
and grouping them into their appropriate groups and having those groups interact with each other in the appropriate way. And that's what chapter three is about. Oh. Okay. So tomorrow we're going to learn about the two groups of the spheros. And when we finish that, we will then start on the next paragraph, which talks about the two groups of the faculties of the soul. Are we going to get to both tomorrow or only one? You notice they said when we finish that. You Very open-ended. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? It also depends on how many follow-up questions. I, sometimes I say something which I think should take five minutes, but we end up spending 40 minutes on it because like, people need more time to like, process it, to become comfortable with the idea. And sometimes I think we're going to spend 40 minutes on something, but I say it in 10 minutes and people have everything to get it, so we move on quicker. Mm. Why well, are you excited to turn the page? I mean, I haven't got enough posted yet. I need at least like okay. another row. Are you kidding? There, there's no Did Schneider someone write this chapter, include this chapter, so that we can evaluate our own? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. You can, you can, you can, if you finish the chapter, you can look and say, okay, well, do my godly faculties actually yeah. subdivide and interact in this way or not at all? Not at anything that looks like this. That it's not anything that looks like this. Yeah. Remember, having everything together as one is not great. You don't want your kidneys and your heart all mushed as one, right? Distinct, and then with interactions. So you want your godly faculties distinct, but interacting. And the first level of distinction is a basic subdivision into two. All right. All right. I hope those who are not here feel better and are here tomorrow. Okay. There will be a game at some point, but I don't promise, I don't tell you which.